www.rnz.org.nz Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl and she works in... No my haere mai kia ora and welcome to Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Inika. Brought to you from our home studios. Kia ora Inika. Kia ora Alison. Well, it's been another week of reading books that have had rave reviews. Aren't we fortunate to have have had time to do that? We're really lucky. And um, I'm so happy to have collected my stack of books from the library. Um, Just in case you hadn't heard, all of our 56 libraries are now open, properly open with the doors open, and they're doing a roaring trade. So um, do go down and support your local library if you haven't been down already. They're just open as of this week. Yeah, it's great news, isn't it? So good to to be back. Um, Now, look, speaking of trade or roaring trades, um, (laughs) I've just read, and I know you've you've read this earlier on, um, Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. Now, this is one that was published in 2018, available in our adult fiction section and also as an Overdrive slash Libby e-audio book. So um, you'd read it a while ago, I think. Yeah, I think maybe a year or so ago or a year and a half ago now. Yeah, I can sort of vaguely remember you talking about it. So look, um, to recap, um, Convenience Store Woman, it's a really heartwarming and surprising story of a (laughs) a 36-year-old Tokyo resident called Keiko Furukura. Now, um, Keiko is a woman who has never belonged either in her family or in her school or community. But then at the age of 18, she began working at the Hiramachi branch of Smile Mart. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Smile Marts, um, I guess, are they kind of a, a fictional um, or fictional based on fact uh, convenience store? Yeah, um, yeah. Chain franchise. Of, yeah, franchise that you find throughout Japan. So when she starts working at Smile Mart, she finds peace and purpose in her life. Um, in the store, unlike anywhere else in her life, she, she really finds that she understands the, the rules of social interaction. Um, and the great thing about the these stores is they have a, a manual that they lay out sort of line by line the, the rules, um, how you do things and how you lay everything out. And um, she does... And how you treat your customers. And, yes, yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's always the same pattern, isn't it? Like, welcome to Smile Mart. <laughs> um, that sort of thing. And she does her best to, to copy the, the dress, the mannerisms the, and the speech of her colleagues. Um, and she's more or less playing the part of a, of a normal, in inverted commas, person. Um, now, Keiko stays at the store for 18 years and, and different managers come and go. Um, it gets to the stage where it's almost hard to tell where the the store ends and she 
begins, actually. Um, she's a very happy person, um, but the people close to her, including both her, her family and her co-workers, they're increasingly putting pressure on her to find a husband, as you do, um, wow. and people are wanting her to, to start a, you know, you've got to start a real career, a proper wow. career. And um, all this sort of pressure prompts her to basically take some desperate action. Yeah, and um, she um, becomes a co-worker with a, a a young man who's sort of similarly alienated, really. He's quite bitter. Um, mm. And he kind of upsets the apple cart a bit and her contentment and everything. And then I won't go into too many details, but what happens next, basically what happens next when she meets this this young man. So look, I found this um, really a, a brilliant depiction of, of quite an unusual psyche and um, a world that is hidden from a, from regular view. Mm. Um, it's a it takes a very sharp look at our contemporary work culture and also the pressures to conform. Um, I, I think it's it, quite charming. Um, and it, she's really, Keiko is really a uh, unforgettable heroine, yes. I would say. I agree. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think it's, um, I found it to be a really interesting story about a, a neurodiverse character finding her place in in this world. Um, and those readers who regard themselves as being neurotypical, I think will find this book quite enlightening. And um, I reckon, too, that the author kind of demonstrates that we all sit somewhere on that neuro continuum. Mm. Um, and you and I, um, in a car, or you and um, the readers, you know, may not, always sit in the same place on that line. Um, but I, I sort of think that's what makes the world such an interesting place. Yes, for sure. It's a really yeah. slim little book, isn't it? Yes, and we like that, don't we? We yeah, like a, we a quick read. I actually listened to it on e-audio um, just in one evening and um, it was narrated by Nancy Wu, who's a well-known yes. actor and narrator. Now, she's something of an it girl in Hong Kong and in the art scene there. But, um, yeah, it reminded me a bit of um, Eleanor Oliphant, just completely fine, you know, by Gail Honeyman. Yes, definitely um, shades of that, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, look, I found it quite a soothing read in many respects. Maybe because of this, in this time of huge uncertainty, but, you know, finding comfort in our daily routines. Yes, I thought it was really um, quite an, such an interesting read for such a small little book. Yes. <laughs> that, that character within the Japanese context as well, I thought was, was really um, so interesting. Yeah, so much yeah. to say that book, yeah. Yeah, it's a great little little volume, isn't it? It is. Well, um, I've also been deep in a stack, like I was saying, and, um, and this, this week I've been deep into um, some award-winning historical novels. Um, so I do have a massive stack waiting for me and another one to collect this weekend. So mm. I'm just really scraping the surface. But, man, this was a great re-entry back into my request list. I um, I read Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell this week. I've been waiting on the queue for quite a while for it. Mm. 
Mm. was published in 2020 and it's available in adult fiction and on Elvis Craft e-audiobook. Now, this is one of our maybe lesser known um, uh, e-platforms. Um, so, U Library by Elvis Croft has got it's only e-audiobooks and it's got an emphasis on UK authors and narrators. So it's just like Libby um, or BorrowBox. You can download the U Library app. So it's very easy and then you just connect up your um, library card and you're ready to roll with a whole lot of new content. So that's one to check out. And it's also got web access. So you can check that out on a website. Now, um, Hamnet um, was the winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2020 and it was on countless best novel of 2020 um, lists last year. Um, it's an intimate and unforgettable portrait of the life of just one family and their overwhelming grief at the southern death of um, the youngest child. Now, it's set in 1580 in rural England. Um, Susanna and the twins, Judith and Hamnet, are the children of Agnes, who's a local healer, and a young playwright who lives and works in London. Their family name, though, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Yes, so the focus of Hamnet, rather than being on Shakespeare, is largely domestic. So Agnes, his wife, is in the foreground. We know her more um, more as Anne Hathaway. You may have heard of her or gone to see her cottage in Stratford mm-hmm. on a visit to England. Now, this is just the most powerful love story between a mother and her children, and it's also a study of a marriage and a strain. There's this unequal balance between each um, husband and wife and their personal needs and ambitions and their family life and child rearing. Obviously, there's unequal. This is the times, you know, mum at home, dad working, still happening in heaps of households. Um, And also, there are different paths of mourning following the loss of one of their children. So like her birth mother, Agnes is really tuned into the rhythms of nature. She is a gardener, she keeps bees, she forages for wild plants, she works as a herbalist and she's also caring for her children as well as the wider family. Um, She lives next door to her in-laws and in her wider community. She is a healer and um, she's she's known to... um, possibly possess the second sight. So she's valued in one respect and feared um, in the community by some people as well. Now, she's also a woman of means. She has a large inheritance from her father who died um, just before she met um, Shakespeare, uh, William Shakespeare. Um, When they first meet, her husband is eight years younger and he's struggling with um, a violent dad and the family business obligations. So there's this tension right through the novel of um, family, professional obligations and also the freedom to determine your own path that kind of runs through um, a lot of the book. There's this vivid ch- uh, chapter in the centre of the novel and it's just 12 pages, but it's actually so interesting. It um, talks about the re-emergence of the bubonic plague, which is what has struck this family at its heart, you know. Um, so we're actually looking, um, we meet the flea on the back of the Egyptian cat who ends up on a ship that stops off at many ports in North um, Africa and then on its way through Europe off to England and then it ends up in the village of Stratford um, with, our, with our family, unfortunately. So it actually provides this real stark reminder in the centre of the book that, you know, the world has been in this place many times before the place we're in right now um, and of all those personal stories behind every death that comes in a pandemic. Now, in a really interesting twist, so Farrell never actually uses Shakespeare's name anywhere in the book, not William, not Shakespeare, nothing. Instead, she refers to him as the father of the children or Agnes's husband. So 
you know, his famous professional life is, is actually just seen at a distance for almost all of the book, just as Agnes is seeing it through these infrequent letters and visits back home to Stratford where she's bringing up the children. And it's only in the final chapters that the family life and the artistic life finally sort of come together in this amazing, amazing, heartbreaking and emotional conclusion. Farah, this this book blew me away, Alison. I cannot, I have not stopped talking about it since I started reading it. Um, I think everyone in my household is hardly sick of hearing about it. <laughs> um, Maggie O'Farrell's writing is just so assured. This is her ninth book and her reputation is absolutely cemented as one of the top um, novelists in England. She actually writes nonfiction as well. The story flows beautifully back into the character's past and then in the here and now of 1580. It's just so effortless as a um, reader experience. I know it wasn't as a writer's experience. She was apparently been trying to write this book for years. Yeah, but as a reader, you're just fully immersed and transported into this world. It's it's a real sensory experience. So you've got this sort of hard physicality of these never-ending chores of a um, you know domestic life in rural England. Um, you've got the smell of woodlands near the town where she's collecting her herbs. Um, you've got the stench and crush of London and just this total piles of people on top of each other in the Globe Theatre. And then you've got this emotional turmoil of a mother whose whose child gets sick very suddenly and is is dead within a day or two maybe 24 hours just um just over so she's desperately trying to soothe this child's fever and then later on you see her washing their broken body oh my god it is heartbreaking and beautiful and i just i'm speechless it was amazing Mm. it was absolutely amazing and amazing how topical it can be um, and that so much of what Shakespeare wrote is, is so relevant today, isn't it? Yes. Well, there was all these interesting parts as well where they you, they kind of just put in a few little Shakespearean, um, you know, tropes and themes, but really themeless and just made sense within. You know, it wasn't like, oh, this is sticking out like the proverbial. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a real wow factor, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, well, oh, well, segueing from that, um, I guess speaking of families, um, yeah. I've just read um, an amazing graphic memoir published this year, 2021, and it's called And Now I Spill the Family Secrets, and it's by um, a writer called Margaret Kindle. Um, now, this is available in hard copy in the adult graphics section, but also as an overdrive Libby ebook um, and e-audio, actually. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yes. Um yeah, I don't know what I'm thinking. I it's just, a graphic, I'm just thinking. <laughs> yes, I'm just thinking that. I'm questioning myself on that. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on, moving right along. So now, Margaret Kimball um, is a, a writer and illustrator and a, a lettering artist. Um, she was born in 1978 in Connecticut in the northeast of America, and she's got Irish-Italian heritage. Now, this illustrated memoir begins in the aftermath of a tragedy. So it's more about family and tragedy. So when Margaret was four years old in 1988, her mother actually attempts suicide. And it's um, the mother, the poor mother does this on Mother's Day of all days. 
And um, this event um, becomes one of many, many things that her family actually never speaks about. So as um, Margaret um, searches for answers nearly 30 years later, she embarks on this really thrilling visual journey into the secrets that her family has kept for decades. Now, um, this is a graphic memoir that's an example of of what they call saying the unsaid. Um, And Margaret, or or Margie, as she's known, Margie Kimball, has said that... um, Producing this book has helped her dispel a lot of her family's shame. Um, And it has to be said that her family cooperated with this project, but they cooperated very reluctantly. Mm. So now, um, I was reading a really interesting um, piece in Literary Hub where Margie writes about the book. And um, she said that... um, now, I'm quoting her here. Um, in the, the summer of 2003, when I was 19, I got a call from my older brother, Ted, that propelled me into a 17-year investigation to uncover our family's long-held secrets. Ted said that when we were little, our mother had tried to kill herself in the shed in our backyard. Shocking information, but by then I was used to shock. And Ted ended with a warning, don't tell anyone. And then he hung up. Gosh. So, yeah, so this revelation and this sort of order, do not talk about this, made Margie wonder what had been going on then and um, what else she might not ever have known about her family. So this graphic memoir, it took years for her to produce um, but it's um, a result of sort of growing curiosity um, and an investigation that she approached partially in reaction to the, the all-encompassing silence that she recalls from her childhood. Mm. And in order to better understand her mother and her mother's mental health problems, she looked to her grandmother, who was also institutionalised multiple times for schizophrenia, um, but everything's blurry and um, they, they say that the only neat lines in the book are those in the sort of crisp illustrations mm. and the illustrations are what they call grayscale so there's no, no colour at all in them but they are very crisp um, she tells a story um, this amazing lettering and um, kind of date stamped chapters and um they and the chapters move back and forth in time they recall her parents divorce the custody battle her dad's remarriage her mum's um diagnosis of bipolar syndrome um the um, mother in and out of hospital um moving house teenage loneliness um and Quite poignantly, her relationship with her older brother, who also has his own struggles with mental health issues. And she finds that um, uh, secrets are a way of of carrying shame. Um, But her parents, they, they say things like, we're not hiding anything. We just don't want to drum up the past. What good would it do, sort of thing. Um, Whereas, and Maggie felt that she was 
compelled in a way to do the exact opposite of her parents. She wanted to describe the family story in plain terms, but hide nothing. Mm. Um, And she said it's the only way she she knows how to connect with other people. Um, She says, here are my skeletons, now tell me yours. Wow. So, and she, um, making this book, she found was a way for her to dispel her family's decades-old shame and to put a language to the experiences and, and to let go of the past so that we could all heal together. So she um, always says that she's had a compulsion to, to blurt, um, but it was always a necessary way of unburdening herself. Um, it's gee, it's a fascinating, a, a fascinating book, telling the story of this the family, including her grandparents. Mm-hmm. Quite an interesting thing, and I've read other um, memoirists have t- talked about this. Um, she says that um, in many ways, the act of writing about other people's lives is a, a betrayal um, for which there's no excuse. Um, and also she acknowledges that people's memories will differ in a family. Um, if, and she says she's always tried to include others' perspectives. Um, but she does feel as though she's stolen the histories of of her parents and her grandparents um, like a vampire. And she's used them for her own purposes. But And she does admit that the words are ultimately hers and not theirs. Mm. Yeah, you know, I just loved this this memoir. Um, found it intensely personal and candid, um, and it it really I found it, it gives us an intimate account of the collapse of of what an outwardly normal whatever that means um, yeah. ordinary yeah. family. Um, we see her her mother's institutionalisation followed by years of recrimination and. The ripple effect of a divorce, and then you've got the attempted um, attempts of a blended household to find that new normal. Um, and we also see that it's it's not just the the patient who has the mental illness who suffers; it's it's the extended family. Now, Margie, the author, she doesn't seem to hold grudges. She's um, very compassionate. I feel in telling her family story. Her illustrations, they're crisp, they're clear, but they're nuanced. Um, And I found they they really showed sort of complicated and conflicting emotions that arise when you've got a family dealing with mental distress. Mm. Look, this is a brilliant family saga, um, and it highlights how trauma reverberates right across generations. But... um, I found it a really hopeful book and surprisingly uplifting um, in the way it kind of destigmatized mental and emotional unwellness. Mm. You know, I really recommend this one, Inika. Just loved it. Fantastic. Um, You've been on a bit of a roll with your graphic novels the last couple of weeks. Yes, I have been. Yeah, love them. (laughs) Well, we're looking forward to browsing a bit more and getting some fresh ones. Of those two, they're so popular with um, with um, all ages, aren't they, in our yeah, library? They, it's one of our most popular really collections. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I am halfway through my next read, so I'll tell you a bit about it. It's another historical novel, and this is called The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. It's published in 2021. From what I can see, it's only in hard copy. I've just had a quick Google while you were <laughs> talking then because I actually forgot to fill in my notes here. Haven't spotted it on Libby, but I will have another check and we will put it into the show notes afterwards. Now, The Prophets tells the story of Samuel and Isaiah. Now, they are two young men who are living as slaves on a plantation, a cotton plantation in the deep south. Now, they're obviously owned and controlled by a a cruel master in this case, Um, but actually they really belong to each other and you get that right from the start of the book. Um, Their their work is, rather than in the fields, they're actually uh, working in the barn, caring for the animals, and um, they also live and sleep together in the barn. So they're best friends but also lovers. Their relationship really is their only refuge and release. Um, so this is this is a it's a different take. It's a different perspective and story from the um, you know the, the those times in the deep south that um, there have been so many books written about this era mm. um, from lots of different perspectives. Now but this is one um, I haven't read um, before. Now as um, Samuel and Isaiah have grown older people are starting to notice that they've got, they've always known that they were connected and close, but they've, they've noticed that this connection, you know, it's become more obvious. They're now around 17 years old. Now, a few of the people who are around them are, are really happy to see this love and, you know, a bit of light in a really dark place. Some of them are jealous of how close they are and are trying to get in between the two to, you know, present themselves as a better option, not understanding how deep the connection goes. And others in the... Um, are on the estate are actively working to break them apart. So through fear, hatred, homophobia, but also um, some are trying to gain favour and influence for themselves as well. So in a place where obviously power and influence is really sitting in just the hands of a few people and so weighted against so many others, Amos, who's an, another fellow save, he attempts to get a bit of a step up and some security for himself and his wife by offering to learn the Bible and the the, um, uh, from their master and to kind of pass on that Christian doctrine to the enslaved to try and, um, yeah, bring them bring them to the church, basically. Now, he also promises that he's going to make sure that every male slave on the property is contributing more than um, to the plantation coffers. Now, how um, the master's plan for this is to have slaves basically impregnate each other. So this is a this is a hard story. Um, obviously, from their perspective, it's a purely commercial enterprise, creating more free labour and a larger investment of holdings, um, movable holdings, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Now, Samuel and Isaiah have not been doing their part in this area to date, and this is where I'm basically at in the story. Now, I'm just over halfway, as I said, so I can't tell you how it all ends. But so far, this has been a very intense reading experience. Um, obviously, that setting um, is not, not new to me. I've done quite a lot of reading. Um, but as you would expect, it's, it doesn't matter how many times you've read about life on these, um, in these the slave situations. Um, it's always confronting. Um, readers should be aware that in this plot, there are depictions of sexual and physical assault. And violence. 
Um, the writing throughout the book is very literary and poetic. It's quite reminiscent of Toni Morrison. So you do need to kind of have your focus going and um, and put aside some time to slowly work, write, read through it. Um, the book also has sections where it looks by, back to the ancestors of the main characters and back into the, their homeland in um in uh, countries in Africa. So they, they look at, um, they compare customs and traditional practices and relationships and um, of all sorts that are so different from the Western Christianity-based and kind of power profit um, mm. and power and profit world that their descendants are now living under, you know, or forced to live under. So you've got these remnants of the old ways still around on the plantation, but they're just conducted in secret so you get little traces of that still coming through in the next few generations and um, passed down from person to person amazing book so far yeah i'm yeah. i'm i am reading it a bit more slowly than i would normally um it's a debut novel very accomplished writing for a debut um wikipedia tells me that um robert jones jr is a journalist and um he's also uh, the creator and curator of a social media community called son of baldwin um and this book was shortlisted for the national book award so definitely one to watch it sounds amazing and um i'm glad to see that so much material is being um, produced writing about the this terrible time um in our history and you what you really describe it's the commodification of mm. these people so they were almost treated like farm animals in a way were weren't oh, they and, absolutely you definitely get that strong yes. sense in this book um there to be used and abused um yes oh on a whim yes yeah. yes yeah Wow, that, this is one that I'm going to have to put this one on request because it sounds like a, a must read. Mm-hmm. So, oh, well done you. Thanks for bringing that one to our attention. Oh, well, look, um, we're just about run out of time. So once again, um, always time goes by so quickly when I'm having so much fun like this. <laughs> so look, thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. Um, take care and, and be kind to yourselves. We will see you again next week. 